And James kind of clues us in here in chapter 3, verse 17, when he says, but the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere, and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. So if we were wondering before, what is godly wisdom? James answers the question by giving us seven characteristics of what that actually is. And the first thing he says is that it's first pure. You know, one of the things that I do love about the snow, man, is that there is this, there's this purity about it when it first falls. It's just so, it's so pure. Nobody's trampled on it, right? Nothing stained it. It exists in its just cleanest, most undiluted state. And so the first characteristic that James gives us here of godly wisdom is that it's, it's like that. It's blameless. It's undefiled. It's morally perfect without blemish. According to uh, Dr. Kent Hughes, he says the wisdom from above means that before anything else, listen to this, he says, we have an unmixed devotion to God. In other words, this is not a wisdom that pulls from all kinds of questionable sources. Man, I mean, so a lot of us are on YouTube now for like all kinds of different things, and it's brilliant, right? It's like helped us in so many different ways. Man, we can do home repairs. I mean, we don't need to call a guy unless you're Ronnie Martin because like we can do this thing ourselves, right? We can do home repairs. We can do building projects. We can learn to play an instrument, man. We can, we can learn how to bake. We can, we can just learn how to do so many different things that before we would have had to get a little more formal education on. We have all of these sources now, all these outlets on YouTube, man. We're just, it's just one click. We can figure out how to do stuff. But godly wisdom, on the other hand, it only has one source if it's to remain pure, if it's to remain truly wise. In other words, Everything we do is tested against the standard we receive from God and His Word. So godly wisdom finds its source in this one book, and that is what we test. All the standards of wisdom that kind of come up and come through and kind of confront us, we test it by this particular standard because godly wisdom is pure. It's blameless. It's the one thing we can look at and not have to go check with somebody else to make sure it's on point, right? So in other words, when Jesus says, love your neighbor, like I don't go to one of you and go, man, I don't know, what do you think about this whole love your neighbor thing? Like, should we do that? Like, is that, is that legit? Should we check the, you know, the validity of that statement? We know that it's a true statement. We know that it's rooted in wisdom because it's rooted in God's word. It's pure, right? And so James is telling us that the first characteristic of godly wisdom is that it's pure. Psalm 24, three through five says this, listen, it says, who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? Who shall stand in His holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, he says. Who does not lift up his soul to what is false. Does not swear deceitfully. He will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of His salvation. Godly wisdom before everything else is the pursuit of of purity in our lives. It's the pursuit of an unmixed, undiluted devotion to God. Now, do we nail that? 
Do we live that out perfectly? Is that pursued in a perfect way? It isn't, but we're pursuing the perfection of the one in whom it is. And by virtue of that and by virtue of the salvation we've received from the pure and living God, this purity of wisdom is being grown in us. Does that make sense? The second thing that James talks about, a characteristic of godly wisdom, is that it's peaceable or it's peace-loving. It's actually the opposite of what we learned last week, which was that the wisdom from below is selfish ambition. So peaceable would actually mean the opposite of selfish ambition. It means this, is that it seeks the welfare of others by being eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace, like we're told in Ephesians 4.3. Paul also tells us in Romans 14, he says to pursue what makes for peace and for mutual uplifting. So you see how peace is connected right there to mutual uplifting of our brother's and sisters. So one of the questions that we ask, I think we asked it last week. If not, we're going to ask it this week. Do your decisions that you make, does the wisdom that informs your decisions, does it benefit others? Or are they simply spent on obtaining your own passions? So I bought Melissa just this insanely beautiful workbench for Valentine's Day. And let me assure you, I was not obtaining my own passion when I bought that thing for her, right? Some of you guys would be sleeping in a hotel right now, right? But this was close to Melissa's heart, right? We don't have those standard gender roles in the Martin household. I don't know, right? Um, You know, I wasn't buying myself a workbench in disguise like a lot of fellas do on days like Valentine's Day. That's not what happens. Now, I'm being ridiculous right now. But when we deny our own passions for the good of others, what do we do right there but create pathways of peace? We set up a context in which more than anything, we are uplifting others by loving the peace that that upliftment provides, if that makes sense, right? We are peace lovers who maintain unity through our peaceful and uplifting way of going about the way that we serve other people. And it's just this beautiful and imaginative picture of thinking of wisdom is not just something that we crack open the cookie and read the little slogan, but it's something that's active and it's flowing through us. I'm trying to create a pathway of peace by mutually uplifting you as you mutually uplift me. The third thing that James uh, comes to is gentleness. He says the wisdom from above is gentle. And what this means and what this speaks to us, especially in this day and age, oh my gosh, is that it matters how we say what we say. It matters how we do what we do. Speaking of YouTube, I recently saw just this horrendous video of a pastor, I think he was a youth pastor, Um, who said he punched someone in the chest as hard as he could because they needed to take God seriously and wake up to the truth. And he got all these cheers. What truth would that be? Right? That's the question that it caused me to ask, right? But I wonder if that might be the default thinking for some of us. Like this, listen. Like if you have to choose between... Uh, being gentle and truthful, well, you 
He better pick true. Right? I think I grew up that way. Truth at the expense of how it's communicated is really all that matters. And that would be great, except for Scripture says the exact opposite of that. Scripture doesn't teach that. Jesus didn't lead like that. We're quick to be truthful, thinking that truth without the gentleness of grace is somehow still true. Except that it's not. Jesus was gentle, and he happened to be the embodiment of truth, which was because he was the embodiment of grace. So the wisdom of Jesus, the wisdom that comes from above, down to us, into our hearts, is characterized by a gentle spirit. Well, how is that gentle spirit lived out? Well, it's lived out when we consider the opinions of others. It's lived out when we make allowance for the weakness of others. It's lived out when we are kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God and Christ forgave you as Paul instructed us in Ephesians 4:32. And by the way, don't despair if this isn't always you. And remember that it's a gentle turn of heart when you begin to desire and pray that God would bring it about in your heart. That in and of itself, right there, is the first of a gentle turning of heart. Remember, Paul went from murdering Christians to praying and weeping for them in the dark hours of the night because of his deep love and his fatherly affection for them, his gentleness of spirit toward them. So the wisdom from above is gentle and it is Christ and our pursuit of Him that creates this gentle-like spirit in us as we're being more conformed to who He is. I don't know. You know, I came from a family that, uh, hey mom, but I came from a family that, that can be a little bit uh, abrasive. You know, we just kind of, we kind of blurt it out. We have a little bit of an Italian, not a little bit, a lot of bit of an Italian background. And um, everybody thinks we're yelling when we're just talking. You know, it's that kind of vibe, um, but, but there, there wasn't, a lot of, wasn't a lot of gentleness, and uh, I, I feel like, you know, I, I've made maybe an inch or two of progress in that in terms of understanding that how we say what we say, how we do what we do is just as important as what we say and what we do. Mom, you've always been gentle with me. Let's talk later if this is this sort of thing. Um, but gentle is one of the characteristics that James opens up for us. Fourthly is opening to reason, being open to reason. What is happening when Christians are unreasonable? What's going on there? When we see sort of this attitude and this forcefulness and Christians are unwilling to budge, they're unwilling to reason. What's going on in you and in me when we see that? It means that we believe truth is more important than grace. It overlaps with a gentle spirit. It means that we believe truth is more important than listening, more important than patience, more important than gentleness, more important than being teachable. This is what it means. It means that we're not seeing ourselves as people who are in process of sanctified learning like that other person that we're not being reasonable with. We're told in the book of Acts that Paul reasoned with people from the Scriptures. What this tells us is that it's not only about knowledge as much as it's about the manner in which we engage with others with the knowledge we have. 
which comes, by the way, from the reasonable, lowly, and gentle heart of Jesus Christ. How different would it be if Christians were known as being the most reasonable people on planet Earth? It verges on insanity that a Christian could ever believe that being closed off to reason is what better communicates the truth of Jesus. Paul saw it differently in Philippians 4 or 5 when he said, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. And he was high on this one. He pushed this one. The next thing James points out is that godly wisdom is full of mercy and good fruits. One theologian defined being full of mercy and good fruits as this, as compassion in action. Compassion in action. So James ties wisdom, godly wisdom, to acting compassionately toward others. Taking sacrificial steps towards someone who has made mistakes, who has sinned against you, who is going through a hard season, and then extending an undeserved hand toward them because of the heart that's been extended to you by Jesus. And this is so counter. It's so counter. It's counter in my own heart. Melissa and I were just talking about that this week, how we have such a hard time extending mercy and good fruits to people that we feel we've been wounded by. It's counter. It's counter wisdom from the earthly kind where people need to earn our good favor back. Well, what's ironic about that is we've never done anything to earn God's favor. And yet it was extended to us by the mercy of Jesus on the cross. So we step back and we go, okay, like, like help me figure this out. Because everything that comes up in my heart, I want them to pay. I'm a punitive guy. Man, you gotta, you gotta pay for it before I extend it out to you. And Jesus is saying, look in the mirror, buddy. It's sobering. But the wisdom from above is full of mercy and full of good fruits. And you know why that's such good news? Is because we've been given the mercy to grow in mercy. I'm not as merciful as I need to be with all of you right now. But I have the mercy from Christ to grow in that mercy. I have the mercy of Christ to grow in compassion and take action steps toward that to you, to my other brothers and sisters, to my family. James says the wisdom from above is also impartial. And what he means by impartial is that we're consistent. There's a consistency to us. There's a steadiness to us. You don't say one thing to one person and another thing to someone else. It means you hold fast to what you know is true. It means you can be trusted to say what you mean and mean what you say to be a man or woman of principle, of consistency. Paul urged the Ephesian church to, this is what he said, listen, he goes, to no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine or by human cunning or by craftiness in deceitful schemes. He was saying, no, to be impartial to employ godly wisdom means that you are going to have a developing steadiness and consistency about the way you act, about the things you say, about the way that you treat others. Is your word actually good? 
Can you be depended on? Because that is one of the earmarks that you have godly wisdom, the wisdom from above growing and developing in you. When people look at you, they know, man, that guy got me. And she, what she says, she does. They're impartial. And then finally, he says the wisdom from above is sincere. Another way to describe this word sincere is to say that it is without hypocrisy. Without hypocrisy. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 12, Paul says, For our boast is this, the testimony of our conscience, that we behaved in the world with simplicity and godly sincerity, not by earthly wisdom, but by the grace of God and supremely so toward you. So to say that we need the church to walk the walk and talk the talk, man, that's just the understatement of the century for us. I'm sure some of you have heard about just the tragedy of everything that's being uncovered about Ravi Zachariah uh, and his ministry. What a tragedy to hear about him and his ministry after his passing, to find out all these years that he was abusing women from a position of power, all the while standing before God's people and defending the truth of the gospel that he was denying when nobody was looking. Now this is not to just, again, throw, throw Ravi, a man that has already passed, under the bus, but it's a cautionary tale for the church. And the wisdom from above is marked by a particular kind of simplicity and godly sincerity. What you see in the light is what you're going to see uh, in the dark when you look at a man or woman of God. It's without hypocrisy. None of us are acting. None of us are actors. What is the thing the world has perpetually against the church? What's the word they always use? Man, I, I, I'd hang with you guys, but you're all a bunch of hypocrites. To which we say, well, join the club because you are as well. So join the, join the hypocrisy club here. Now that's a funny and flippant way of saying, hey, in some ways, man, none of us are everything that we're supposed to be, right? But that doesn't mean that we don't practice our faith in all sincerity, in all repentance before the God, before God, for those moments where we are play acting, where we are acting like hypocrites, where we aren't having a sincere and a pure faith before God. I mean, how, how, how much further do I go with that? How much further do I take that in the sense that we step back and we look at the items of our life, we look at the things that we're engaged in, and do they align with Jesus? Right? Are they things that we just slough off? Are we able to put on that face on Sundays or in the middle of the week or when we face people in our community all the while living a life that just gives Jesus no glory? You've got to ask yourself that question. Like We've got to ask ourselves those self-examining questions. And what am I doing right now in my life that if somebody looked at it, they would question whether I knew Jesus? It's not a legalistic thing, right? Because there's grace for you and for me, first and foremost. 
There's grace for us. There's mercy for us. But if we're interested in growing in godly wisdom, we want to be honest about where we are at with these seven characteristics that James lays out for us, right? So this, this is a call for those who are wise and understanding to live in the meekness of wisdom so that our conduct is something that pleases Jesus. So those are the characteristics that, that James lays out, seven things, characteristics of godly wisdom. And then in verse 18, he shows us what the fruit of that wisdom is when it's lived out. Let me read 18 again. It says, And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. He says, A harvest of righteousness. What does a harvest of righteousness look like? Well, what does a harvest of anything look like? It's no secret that I'm not a farmer, but some of you are. Um, And it's safe to assume that many farmers are already praying for a good harvest this year. All of their labor is for the aim of bringing in a good harvest. And by the way, that desire and that work and that toil, it's not all on the farmer either. When we think of, a, of, of the harvest that a farmer brings in, and they have to rely on the Lord for some things. They have to rely on, the, rely on the Lord for good weather. They have to trust Him when the rain doesn't come. They have to rely on Him when all the equipment breaks and fails. A farmer needs to be incredibly wise with the land and the equipment and the techniques God has given them so that they might enjoy the fruit of a good harvest. They work hard. They put all of those things, all of those pieces together that generate something at the end which will be a bounty for them and for others. And by the way, they also can't eat everything they harvest, right? They don't stockpile everything in their barns and kitchens after a harvest, but they sell and they share for the good of all. So this is what James is talking about when he says a harvest of righteousness. Something is going to be produced that is good for you and to the benefit of others that everybody can see, right? Everybody can see it. And it's the same for us spiritually. We work hard toward applying wisdom in order to reap that same harvest of righteousness. And at the heart of it, James says, is peace and peaceableness. At the heart of this wisdom is the peace of Christ who is our peace, who created peace between us and the Father through the cross. We sow in peace those things that contribute to blessings from the Lord, which ultimately is peace. Like farmers, we are not always operating in the most ideal of conditions, but we still press on, trusting, hoping, praying, and being faithful when the soil God has provided in us to grow the righteousness He has given to us through Jesus Christ continues to become richer and deeper. So imagine again, imagine, imagine how this will be accomplished in you, how this will be accomplished through you. I look out on this church and I think each one of you are these harvests of righteousness in which the wisdom from above will be grown in you and given through you 
to everyone around you. We all have these harvests of righteousness that grow into one large harvest. Some of you will bring in bigger harvests. But it's not about the size. It's about the kingdom of God spreading and affecting all that it comes into contact with, with the good fruits of Jesus. We spiritually farm the rich soil that exists around us in our town, in our schools, in our jobs, in our neighborhoods, in our churches. All of this purity and peaceableness and gentleness and reasonableness and mercy and good fruit and impartiality and sincerity is meant to cover the landscape of our lives like blankets upon blankets of good spiritual produce. Get just a picture in your mind of the beauty and the glory of that. So we pray that God's wisdom the characteristics of Jesus and the wisdom from above would become more manifest in us, become more manifest in our heads, in our hearts, and in our hands. We pray for it. And we plead for it. We practice it. We repent when we don't. We praise God when we do. We benefit others with this wisdom through our gentle, peaceful, and merciful sacrifices that are bursting through the soil of our hearts that God continues to cultivate through the love of Jesus Christ in our hearts. Amen? If you'd bow your heads, I'm going to read a prayer written by Dr. Kent Hughes that I thought was a fitting end to these passages. And then we will take uh, the Lord's Supper together. So if you bow your heads, I want to read this prayer. Our only wise God, we pray that you will make us pure in our moral lives and in the purity of our devotion to you. With all our hearts, we desire this first named characteristic of wisdom the foundational element of wisdom from above. We pray that you will further fill us with heaven's wisdom, making us peaceable. Give us your shalom and help us promote peace with our brothers and sisters. God, we entreat you to make us gentle so we will make allowances for the weaknesses of others and will be reasonable and kind in all our dealings with difficult people. God, make us open to reason so we will submit to reason, abandon unthinking stubbornness, and be open to the changing of our minds when we are wrong. Lord, heaven's wisdom is full of mercy and good fruits, compassion that brings merciful action. Would you help us to go beyond pity and sentiment so that we do merciful acts and that we become the hands of Christ. Lord, grant us the wisdom to be impartial, to be unwavering in respect to biblical principle so our lives will exude fairness. And finally, Lord, make us sincere, clear-eyed, honest, forthright, without masks, so others will perceive the wisdom of Christ in us. Lord, give us wisdom from heaven, we pray in Jesus' name.
Amen.